Okay, today is Thursday, uh, October the 27th, 2011, and we will prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion, a few moments of silent prayer, uh, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the rain we have, the sprinkling, the moisture. Uh, we're thankful for every little bit of uh, moisture that we get. We know that you will continue to be faithful and provide it also. And we pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I've got a quick... Well, it's not so quick. I'll try to just summarize this. Uh, <laughs> I found something that someone sent me that was, um, I like it because I finally found someone that agreed with me on something. <laughs> it's, an, it's not a very popular notion that I have, and y'all have heard this before. Uh, I think the idea that Everyone is supposed to go to college is pretty nutty, and yet that seems to be the idea these days. And this guy is named Gary Gibson from Seattle, Washington, and he says, I'll read some of this and just paraphrase some. College is not necessary for most people. It never was. In fact, the preoccupation with college has left America bereft of its former ability to create wealth. An unhealthy culture myth has flourished, flourished that says everyone must go to college and get an advanced degree, even if it's something for which there is no where there is virtually zero market demand. Meanwhile, below market interest rates and government-backed loans have lured a couple of generations of Americans down the road to higher education. Uh, the kind of education that colleges provide uh, is the type that all American schooling, uh, schools from kindergarten onward uh, produce not innovators and entrepreneurs and job creators. And then there's an article by um, Michael Ellsberg in the New York Times that was entitled, Will Dropout Save America? It's an interesting title, isn't it? And he just goes on to say that uh, American academia is good at producing writers, literary crit critics, and historians. It is also good at producing professionals with degrees, but we don't have a shortage of lawyers and professors. America has a shortage of job creators, and the people who create jobs aren't traditionally professionals, but startup entrepreneurs. And he talks about how uh, higher education has uh, are the fact that there are so many loans given to people who want to go to college that it has created an educational bubble, just like there was a, a mortgage bubble. Uh, it started with the GI Bill when the, when the government would give veterans uh, the ability to go to college with uh, help, financial help. And now that is uh, offered to everyone uh, for the most part. And by the way, what did the college tuitions do once they found out that government and these other places were going to give loans? They skyrocketed, and they are still 
uh, up in the stratosphere. He said, uh, let's see, exceptional people still become scientists and engineers. Everyone else gets a master's degree in some field that was recently invented to meet the artificial demand for advanced degrees for people who couldn't be scientists or engineers but who had a head full of misguided notions and a boatload of borrowed money. This education came to supplant things like entrepreneurship, initiative, the willingness to take a risk, and accept and learn from failures. Now, he turns for just a moment to the occupation movement that you've seen recently, occupying the uh, Wall Street. You know, they, people by the hundreds just camp out in parks, and they're, they're protesting, but they had a hard time articulating what it was they were protesting. He says this. He says, uh, trying to, uh, uh, turning to the occupying movement, uh, it is full of poster children uh, for this, the idea of people who've gone to college, they're in debt, and now they can't get a job. And he says they, they came out on the, on the other side of the system unemployed and in debt. They feel lost and angry, unable to think of life past the burden of their student loans. So today, grad students have expensive but essentially financial worthless degrees. They feel bamboozled and have taken to the street. Uh, they would like student loans to be wiped out uh, that the people may be bailed out like the bankers and the big businesses were. Now, I'm not saying that I side with them. I'm not saying that I support them uh, of any, or anything like that. But what I'm saying is I think people need to just stop and stay, you know, take a step backwards. And especially young people need to decide what do they really want in life? And does that require a $100,000 expense maybe going into debt to get a degree, are they sure that this is what they want and are they sure that this is going to be financially viable once they get out? Are they going to have a job? There are a lot of people, and I know some of them personally, that have uh, graduate degrees who are pumping gas. Now, more, that is not to demean them in any way. In fact, I, I uh, esteem them highly for getting out there and doing what it takes uh, to provide for themselves and their family. That's just something, uh, just food for thought that uh, hardly anybody ever even mentions. Uh, I've, I've seen on TV, just throughout our culture, it seems like uh, everyone has a right, it's nearly a duty to go to a university of higher learning and then even sometimes get a master's degree or get a Ph.D. or whatever. And uh, that isn't working so well in, in some areas. So... So much for that. Uh, let's get to our gospel series. And we're going to start tonight right after I expand on something I gave you last time. In fact, I think I'll just show you the review. We got most of the review for those of you who weren't here last time. Um, I did a review already, so we wouldn't wait until we we're all the way done. You don't have to. You probably won't see this too well, but it just kind of gives you an idea of what we did last time. We got all the way down to gospel misconceptions, and I think we ended where all the way down to 
right here. Point E right here. The idea that there's going to be a judgment where your good works are going to be balanced against your bad works or your sins and however that weighs out is going to determine your eternal destiny. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who think that is how the end is going to come. And it is in the Koran, Shura 11, 114, and Shura 7, 8 through 9. 114 here uh, speaks about good deeds uh, canceling out sin. And then this other, uh, Shura 7, 8 through 9, uh, talks about this balancing day when everything is going to be balanced one against the other. And that is all complete balderdash uh, as we have looked at. Just a few other things that we're... I am responding to a, an article of someone who had written into the Brain Call and made certain comments, and I have uh, responded to that. And this is just an outline review of where we've gone so far. And point number five, I don't know if you can see it right here. Uh, the Brain Call excerpt, this was one of the things this guy said. This grace is not given to anyone who does not keep our Lord's commandments. And so I, first of all, just like I did with regards to the comment he made about gifts, now I, I, then I made a, gave a de definition of a gift. Now I'm making a definition of grace. Definition of grace is, in Christian belief, the free and unearned favor of God. It means to get something you did not deserve. No strings attached. It's similar to the definition of, of, of a gift in that way. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Scriptural refutation of this idea that grace is given uh, essentially to only those who obey the Lord's commandments. A few refutations of that is Galatians 2.21, 2 Timothy 1, 8, and 9, Titus 3, 5, and Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Most of those you should already have memorized and have them at the ready when someone makes such an uh, erroneous conclusion. And then we're going to stop here on our review, our mini-review. And you can see I put this in a box. I, color, I put a background color in it, and this is in bold. This is what you always should keep in mind when you're talking to someone who thinks that you have to have something other than faith in order to be saved. And this is the question. If we can be saved by our own works, then why did Christ have to go to the cross? Is that not a good question? If we can be saved by our own works, we don't need the cross. So was this a wasted trip? Was all that unbelievable suffering that Christ did for naught? And then underneath it, it says, if we have accepted by, excuse me, if we can be accepted by God based on our own righteousness, then we don't need grace. And that's what people do who are trying to be accepted or saved by their own works. They're trying to be accepted by God by their own righteousness. If that's the case, they don't need grace. Keep that foremost in your mind when you're talking to someone that thinks that you have to do something other than believe in Christ in order to be saved. Now we're going to pick up our study in the Getting the Gospel Right series.
And this is in 24 font, so you should be able to follow in this one. I'm going to paint this orange. It's camouflage. Okay, tonight we're going to pick up the Catholic example because we're talking about people who think that you have to add something other than faith in order to be saved, and this makes a good example. Catholics believe Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, that he died on the cross for their sins and was buried and rose from the grave. One would think surely that Catholics are saved based on that. And if you ask a Catholic if he believes in Jesus Christ, he most assuredly would say, what? Yes, he does. Would him saying that mean he is saved? Many think so. But here's the thing. Asking one more question will give you the answer as to whether he is saved or not. This is what you ask. Is that the only thing you're trusting in for eternal life? That simple question will answer a, a, a big question. If he's honest, he will tell you that he must also take the sacraments of the Catholic Church. He'll say, no, that's not all you have to do, not by a long shot. The sacraments, by the way, are just part of what they have to do. Uh, this is a quote from Wikipedia on uh, the Catholicism. It says, The Catholic Church affirms that for believers as a whole, the sacraments are necessary for salvation as the modes of grace divinely instituted by Christ himself. Likewise, as the sole dispenser of Christ's sacraments, the Catholic Church itself is spoken of as the universal sacrament of salvation containing individual seven sacraments, sacraments of the Catholic Church. So that is, and that doesn't tell the whole story. Uh, Catholics think that you have to partake of these seven sacraments, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. In addition to trusting in Christ's sacrifice on the cross, Catholics also believe they must do the following in order to be saved. They have to be baptized, confirmed, attend Mass to partake, of the, or to partake of the Eucharist. Now, they, our, our Eucharist or our Lord's Supper appears on the surface to be the same as the, the Mass when they take communion. But there is a vast difference. But if you were just standing over to the side, it would look like they're similar. The difference is we do it in remembrance of Christ. The Catholics do it in order, it is an ongoing, it's called the sacrifice of the Mass. And they have been told, and I assume that they believe, that when the priest takes the wafer and he holds it up and he blesses it, that it literally and really becomes the body of Christ. That's called consubstantiation. Excuse me, it's kind of hard to say whereby that wafer is literally Christ's body and you have to eat that and ingest it in order for that sacrifice to be applicable to you. And it's the same thing with the cup. That becomes the blood of Christ, the literal, they say, the literal blood of Christ, which you must drink in order to uh, 
Maintain your salvation. Also, uh, they must go to confession, do penance for their sins, be a member of the Catholic Church, and not commit a mortal sin. Even if a Catholic does all the above, there still is no guarantee that he will go that he will be going to heaven without having to go to purgatory for an undetermined period of time where a further purifying process takes place. Now, if, all, if you do all of those sacraments to the T and you, you're, you're faithful in going to confession, you're faithful in taking a communion, uh, you've already been baptized, you've been confirmed, uh, you do penance whenever they say it's time to do penance. You're a member of the Catholic Church. And you have refrained from doing a mortal sin, which I'll explain in a, in a bit. Then you're still not guaranteed that you have interest to, entrance into heaven. You have to go to purgatory which, and go through a purifying process. In other words, you have to suffer more for your sins. And no one can tell you how much suffering or how long you're going to be there before you might be able to get into heaven. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. And anywhere along the way, you can stumble, commit a mortal sin, and if you don't go through the right steps, you're, you're toast. I didn't mean that to sound like... I didn't think about being in the lake of fire being toast, but I guess you're burnt toast. The necessity of partaking of the sacraments of baptism is illustrated by the comments taken from a Catholic council. And here's, this is a quote. The first sacrament is baptism for the vast majority of Catholics takes place in infancy. The canon and decrees of the Council of Trent declares the following. Our Lord Jesus Christ merited for us justification by his death upon the cross. So far, so good. But there, what do you see? The but. The but isn't there. It's in brackets, but it's there. But the instrumental cause of justification is the sacrament of baptism without which no man was ever justified. If anyone says that baptism is not necessary for salvation or denies that infants newly born are to be baptized for the remission of sins, let him be anathema. This it means eternally damned. Then he says, uh, For baptism we put on Christ and are made in him an entirely new creature, receiving full and complete remissions of all sins. That uh, came from the Brian Call Dave Hunt, February 1991. The same sentiment holds true for anyone who rejects the notion that the sacraments of the Catholic Church are necessary to be saved, are not necessary to be saved. Did I have that not? Let's see, the notion that the sacraments of the Catholic Church... Oh, reject. Where am I? Okay, rejects. I'm sorry, I missed rejects. The same sentiment holds true for anyone who rejects the notion that the sacraments of the Catholic Church are necessary to be saved. And below is another example. Here we have another quote from... The Council of Trent. If anyone says that in the Mass a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God by priests who offer his own body and blood, that would be Christ, or the sacrifice of the Mass is not a propitiatory one, that means a satisfactory one, 
that propitiates God, let him be anathema, again, being cursed to hell. The Council of Trent insists that, quote, no one can know with certainty of faith that he has obtained the grace of God or that he is among the number whom God has chosen. Anyone who claims to be certain of his salvation is anathematized. That means cursed to hell. Now, what does the Bible say about being certain of salvation? 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And what is the, the key word there? No, based on what? Belief. Believing in Jesus Christ. That's the only qualification that is listed, that is named for us to know that we have eternal life. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. And then we have John 3, 36. I know you all all know this because it's on the bulletin. It's one of the ones, I think it's the one for this month which is going to change shortly. He who believes in the Son, what? Has eternal life. But he who does not believe, and if it says obey, forget that. He who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, I forgot. I told you I was going to expand on something, and I forgot to do it. So I'm just going to put that down for right now and just... Um, oh, Yes. <laughs> I want to say something so bad, but I can't. It has something about, well, never mind. It has something to do with the bird. Anyhow, um, you remember last time in John chapter 6 and verse 29, we were talking about Jesus Christ came from feeding the 5,000. And there was a multitude that following, followed him. And he left, he went from the south side of the Sea of Galilee to the west side where Capernaum is. And they found him, and you remember what he said when they came to him? He said, you are not here to get the bread that results in eternal life. You're here to get a free meal. You're just here for the bread because you think I am, uh, th that's all I have to offer. And that's what they were uh, essentially interested in. And I wanted to make a parallel of what we have today and you'll see the, the, the comparison. You'll see how it is like the same attitude that these people hit, who had. The real thing that Christ had to offer was eternal life. and all. He is the bread of life. In verse uh, 51, I believe it is, it says that he is the living bread that comes down out of heaven. It's just like he told the woman at the well that he is living water. He said, I, if you know who I, who I am and who asked you to draw up some water, you would ask me to draw up the living water. And she says, give me this water. She wanted the living water because she says, if I get this living water, I won't have to come back to the well and pull this water up. She thought that he would give her some kind of water where she wouldn't be thirsty anymore. And, and they missed the whole point, and that's the, the comparison I'm making is that in our day and time, you have probably the great majority of churches where you have people going to church for the wrong reason. Uh, they go to be entertained. 
They go to be healed. Uh, they go to get an emotional high. Uh, they go for all these reasons except for what the church was designed to do. And the church was designed to equip the saints for spiritual combat. But they're not interested in that. I'll give you an example. What do you think would happen if we had someone come in one, one day, Sunday, or maybe on a Thursday night like this, and they came in, and they were crippled. They were crippled since birth. Maybe they were... Uh, paraplegic or something and they came down front here and I said the razzmatazz and I touched them and they got up and walked they did the jig and it got out in the press it got out in the banner press and people started started talking about this that I was able to heal someone like this what kind of crowd do you do you think we would have the next Sunday huh you couldn't get them in here with a shoehorn they would be just hanging out well you can't hang out these windows because they don't open but it would, <laughs> my point is, we would be packed. Now, why are they coming? It's like what these, the multitude did to Christ. They weren't coming to get the Word, the living Word. They're coming to get a fix, whether it's to fix their curiosity, whether it's to be entertained, whether it's to be able to uh, get the emotional high. And you can see these churches. When you walk into a, most churches, you can, as soon as you walk in, you can, you can start telling, is this the kind of church that I want to be in where I can grow in grace and knowledge? First thing I do when I start, before I even get to the church, I'm looking at the people and seeing if they're carrying Bibles or not. And you would be surprised how many people go to church and never carry their Bibles, or even if they carry them, they never open them. And then I look, if, if I... Uh, it doesn't always mean uh, that there are instruments. There's nothing wrong with having drums and electric guitars and all the other things for instruments. Nothing wrong with that. But I found the few churches that I've gone to that had that, they get cranked up and the singing takes a lot more time than the teaching does, or in this case, the preaching. And it gets people emotionally high. Even the type of music that the people are listening to says a lot. You'll notice that we have a wide variety of hymns that we sing, not only for our, uh, before we have Bible class on weeknight, but on Sunday we have different hymns, and they are hymns. They're not chants. They have tremendous doctrine in them. And we are singing praises to the Lord, and at the same time it's focusing our attention upon his principles, his precepts, who and what he is. All that makes for a dull church as far as a lot of people are concerned. There have, I, I have been told, first-hand knowledge, that people have come to this church and left and then spread it around town that this is an unloving, boring, dull church. And I asked the person that was telling me this, I said, why did they say that? He said, there was none of the... None of this. None of the just, you know, we didn't crank up the music. We didn't get our hands in the air. We didn't chant. There wasn't a whole lot of emotional stimulation. So I know as a fact that we have been characterized, at least by some, as a dead church. And because we don't have all of that. So I was wondering, there's a, I'm not going to mention any names, but the, the biggest church in maybe the United States is not too far from us. And I was wondering what, happened, what would happen if that pastor who has about thirty-five to 40,000 members 
if one day he just said, okay, I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we are going to start exegeting the first verse, and I'm going to go into the Greek to show you the tense, voice, and mood of these verbs so you will understand uh, how to connect the dots. And if he started exegeting, what do you think would be happening? Those people would be hitting those doors like rats leaving a sinking ship. They couldn't get out there fast enough because they're not there to learn. They're there to feel good about themselves, to hear a lot of platitudes and a lot of things that um, make them feel good. But if you are in any church where you are getting the Word taught properly, there are days that you are going to leave, and instead of feeling good about yourself, you're going to feel so low that you could walk under the door. That's what the Bible does to us. Remember, when, even in this series, we were talking about you've got to get someone lost before you can get them saved. And a corollary to that is you have to get someone humble before, before they're going to recognize what their purpose is on earth, how to execute the Christian way of life. And it's not by going back to the Mosaic Law. It's not by going uh, by your emotions. It's by sticking to it. That marathon of getting doctrine time after time after time after time, building precept upon precept. That is how God designed it. And all these other things are like the people who used to follow Christ in order to get a free meal. And there's a lot of people that are going to churches today not in order to grow. In fact, if anyone did, it did really start getting some in-depth teaching, that church would probably cease to exist. So that's the expansion I, was, I had in my mind that uh, would be a parallel to those who were uh, following Christ. And if I, you remember what, he, what they finally said? They asked Christ, uh, what, do we, what must we do in order to do uh, the works of God? Remember that? And then he gave them a play on words. Remember what he said? He said, this is the what work, singular, of God. He's saying salvation is a work, singular, of God. The whole package is provided by God so that you can believe and receive eternal life because God did the work. That's the answer there. And that was another way that we were uh, talking about faith alone and Christ alone. Okay. I'm sorry that I had to interrupt where we were, but I wanted to do that before I forgot it again. Did I close it? I think I closed it. Well, we'll just go over here then. I was going to do this later, but we'll do it now. I, I showed this to Carrie. Uh, I have uh, the, the, the pamphlet that we have. I have it in my briefcase that says uh, Catholicism in the back. Have you all ever seen those before? We have one on Mormonism and one on Jehovah Witnesses and one on Catholicism. Well, there was in the middle of this was a chart that I thought was really neat that I wanted to show you. And I didn't know how to get it on the computer where I could do it. So I took this phone and took a picture of it 
downloaded it onto a pen drive and put it on here so that you can see it. Uh, Ken, will you turn these lights out because this might be a little uh, hard to see. This one's here. Okay. Now you're probably thinking the same thing that Carrie said when I, I told her, I, I was very proud. I took this picture and I put it on there. I said, I'm going to show this tonight. I got this, got this thing here. She says, what is it? I said, this is a map on how a Catholic gets saved. And that's what it is. So I'll just, take you, I'll just run you through it uh, briefly. You can start over here, a starting point. If you're a baby, this is for a baby that's born, let's say, into a Catholic family. Uh, the first thing that they need to do is go up here and get justified uh, through the sacrament of baptism. That's if you're a baby. If you're not a baby, you're an adult, and you're coming in as an adult into the Catholic Church, they, first of all, you receive what they call first actual grace. And I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but they say you have it. Uh, and you must cooperate with that grace, and if you do cooperate with it, then... You have faith. Yes, you have faith. But here's the thing. It's not faith alone in Christ alone. It's faith in the Catholic Church. So if you have faith and you do good works on top of that, you have to learn what all their ideology is. Then you get up here and you are ready to be justified through the first sacrament of baptism. By the way, I, I, I don't have it here, but this is if you have faith in if you don't, this no here, goes, this line goes down, comes across, and you go up here, and this is the bad side. It's where you don't want to be, and there's more than one way to get there, but it's called final impenitence. But anyway, let's, here we are with your baby, or you're an adult, you get to this point, and you, are, you have a justification here. Now, this, see this dotted line here, going across here? Anything below this line, you're spiritually dead. Anything above this line, you're spiritually alive. And also there's a line this way. Here you're physically alive. On this side you're physically dead. But we're not there yet. So far we got to the first sacrament, which is baptism. And then after you're baptized, you have your first confession and your first communion. You're on your way. But you've got a long ways to go. The next, the next stop is Increased justification through reception of the sacramental and material grace. So you're doing, the, you're doing the deal. You're a Catholic. You're doing the things you're supposed to do. And then you co you're cooperating with grace. As long as you do this, you're cooperating with grace. And up here, you're... Uh, the Eucharist and the other sacraments. You're doing all these things, see? And if you stop doing them, you know you're not doing them. You go over here at, at the end of your life, and then we'll see what happens over here. But let's say you're doing all this. You're cooperating with grace. Yes, if you are, then you're, you continue to have faith in the Catholic Church and the sacraments, and you have good works, and you get merit stored up. If you go that direction... But now, if you, if you don't cooperate with grace and you sin, then you're going down this line. And if it's a serious, uh, conscious, and 
deliberate sin, it's mortal. If it's, if it's just a regular sin, it's venial sin. I, I don't know exactly what a venial sin is, but everyone, evidently someone knows how it goes from venial to mortal. Let's take venial first. If it's a venial sin, I'm not, I'm not absolutely sure, but I think they can just pray and say, I'm sorry, I'll do better, or just acknowledge that sin. And they have, then they do temporary punishment. See, if, if, if you say uh, you do a sin and it's just venial, then you go over here and there's going to be a temporary punishment. And it, and it builds up, this punishment does. Then you have to do acts of penance in order to take care of that punishment that is stored up. And you have plenty of good works, and then you're going to move on. But if it's a mortal sin, then you're going down this way, and it's, this is de-justification. I didn't know that a person could be de-justified. Evidently, they think you can. It's through a mortal sin. Now, you have a choice here. If you, if you want to do penance and have remorse, this type of thing, then you get re-justification. You get re-justified if you uh, do the sacraments and uh, penance. If you don't do the sacrifices of penance and so forth and you committed a mortal sin, then you're going down here and uh, you must repent of that sin. Now, if you, if you do repent, then you go up through here and you get re-justified and then you have the sacrament of penance and go this route. If you don't repent and you go to the end of your life, uh, to the end of your life, then you have final impenitence. You, it appears like you can get over here close to the end of your life and say um, no and you go this route. So here we go. We're up here. We did the, uh, we come out of the, we've got re-justification we get temporal punishment stored up, acts of penance, and good works are going to uh, store up merit. And then you come to the end of your life so far. And that is clear as crystal, isn't it? You got it so far. Then uh, you're still physically alive, and this is the final uh, perseverance. That always makes me think. Perseverance of the saints. Heard of that before? This has a lot of things in common with Reformed theology. So uh, you have this final perseverance, and you died in a state of grace if you get to that point. Now, if you mess up, if you don't get baptized over here, then you're in final impenitence, and you're dead in a state of sin rather than in the state of grace. And if you, if you go over here and you do a mortal sin, you don't take care of it and go through this, then you're died in a state of sin okay now if you're now this this physical life is over now you're on the uh physically dead here it says uh there is merited eternal life if you died in a state of grace you have merited eternal life and then you go into credit for acts of penance and named indulgences in other words still all this this good versus the, the sin has to be balanced out. And so if you die in a state of grace, you hadn't screwed up real bad down here, then uh, you get credit for all the penance you did over here, plus indulgences. A, a, a priest could come up and say, 
well, under the circumstances, we're going to indulge that sin. It's not going to count against you. I know that when the Crusades were going on, they were handing out indulgences like crazy because they said uh, this indulgence will uh, certify, make sure that you don't go to purgatory and you're going to go to heaven if you join the crusade. And so they were handing out indulgences. Uh, there are times when they have been bought and so forth. But anyway, if you have these, if you get to here, then you think, okay, I get to go straight to go, go, get to go to no. With all this going on for you, you still have temporal punishment in due. And that would be either in purgatory or else, evidently, some of them can bypass go and go straight to heaven. But some are going, maybe most, are going to go to purgatory. We don't know how long they're going to be there or what it's going to take to get them out. I know that they sell indulgences. If You can, you can go and they have little, little forms you can fill out and say, uh, I'm going to, they pay the priest to, to say so many prayers and they donate and this is going to help them get out of purgatory faster and then they go up here to heaven and then there's degree depending on your degree of merit whether you get uh, small uh, rewards or this is great rewards down here if you died in a state of sin you're going straight to hell and not past gold and over here there's going to be degrees of guilt and uh, punishment here this is going to be glory here. They didn't say call it uh, rewards or crowns. Just glory. You have small glory here, more glory here. And over here there would be de degrees of punishment. Now that's the best that I can do in explaining to you how a Catholic gets saved. And um, I don't know about you, but it makes me so thankful for the grace of God. That, uh, that I don't have to go through life worrying and fretting about whether I have done enough good deeds to cover enough penance, received enough indulgences, done enough in order to cover the sin. The fact of the matter is that I believe, and I'm pretty sure that you believe, that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he took care of the sin problem. Uh, when he said it was finished, I believe it was finished. There's nothing else necessary for us to do so let me get out of this by the way as i'm going through this i just want to make a mention of something here while we're going through this um if anyone has the idea that i am bashing catholics i want you to know that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, I'm bashing Catholicism, not Catholics. We are to love Catholics. We are to love them enough to tell them the truth. And anyone that... Uh, that see, that, the reason I'm telling you that is because a lot of people think, oh, I can't step on someone's toes. I, I, I don't want to... Uh, disrespect their religion. Why not? That religion is sending over a billion people to spend eternity in the lake of fire because of their lies and because of their deception. And I have absolutely zero respect for it. I have nothing but contempt for it, but not the Catholics. The Catholics have been held in bondage to these lies. And our job is to love them 
and give them the gospel. I'll have a lot more to say that in a few moments. I'm just beginning to fight on this front. Back to our deal here. The same sentiment holds true for anyone who directs the notion that the sacraments of the Catholic Church are necessary to be saved. Below is another example. If anyone says that in the Mass a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God by the priests who offer his own body. I read that, didn't I? I got that. Okay, let's go. Okay, did I give you these verses? I gave you the verses. Okay, now. The following excerpt sheds light on the thinking of Catholic regarding salvation. And I won't be able to get through this, but maybe a paragraph here. This is a, 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 a woman that is a Catholic, and it's very interesting because I saw insights through what she says about the thinking of a Catholic that I have not seen before, and I'm going to pass it along to you, and it will help us better understand their thinking, where they're coming from, and to be able to better give them the truth and dispel the, the lies that they've embraced. She says, Many Catholics just don't know what to say when someone asks them whether they are saved. As Catholics, we're vaguely familiar with saved language. We don't usually ask someone, Are you saved? And when someone asks us this question, we often stutter and fumble for an answer. So how should we answer, Are you saved? She says, constantly. We are constantly being saved by the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds pretty good, but not so when you understand what she means by that. She says, why? Why are we constantly being saved? Because salvation is dynamic, ongoing. It's a past, present, and future reality. And then she, she's going to talk about the past reality a little bit here. She says, salvation is a past reality. We have been saved by the death of Jesus Christ. God pardoned our sins. Boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? What we have next. But, but being pardoned isn't the same as being holy. Being pardoned gives us back our freedom to choose the road to holiness, to walk the narrow path. Right now, today, we are being saved. Grace is wooing us down the narrow path. We are becoming holy. Salvation is an ongoing event. Now, I want you to put on your thinking caps and do you see what they're missing? Don't say it out loud, but I want you to think. There is a very important doctrine a sal that has to do with salvation that they are missing. Do you know what it is? Two words. God's righteousness. They don't know about imputed righteousness. That's why she's saying that being pardoned gives us back our freedom to choose the road to holiness. Are you holy? Are you a saint? Yes. Did you have to get on a, a road and be wooed in order to be holy, in order to be sanctified? So they're walking the narrow path. 
today. They're in the process of grace is wooing us down the path. We are becoming holy. Now, just think about this a moment. You can understand how they would get it mixed up because just because we as a group hopefully have this straight, they don't understand the difference between positional and experiential. They don't know that God imputed His own righteousness because of faith. Romans 4, 5. Remember, wouldn't that be a good one to tell a Catholic? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, which is what they're trying to do. Not of works of righteousness what, that we have done, but what? But according to faith. You see, it, faith comes from... Um, excuse me. Uh, righteousness comes on the basis of faith. You got that? That's what they don't get. They're trying to work for that righteousness. And it just can't be done. And here's the other side. There is something that kind of follows their line of thought because there is an experiential righteousness. And we are on a road and we are striving to achieve this experiential righteousness. We are striving to be experientially sanctified, set apart for special blessing so that we can receive the greater grace that God offers to those who are experientially sanctified and experientially righteous. We understand that. But you have to understand these clear distinctions or else you can buy into this idea that the purpose of grace is to woo us down this narrow road so that we can be holy, so that we can be sanctified. You got that? You see that? Okay. She says, we are being saved because grace has not yet fully transformed every area of our mind emotion, desires, and will into the mind, emotion, desires, and will of Christ. And when this transformation takes place, what will we be? The body of Christ. We will be one with Christ, God and I becoming one. Now, do you see what, she, what, what they're missing here? They're trying to be, become in Christ... See, they said that, and it's true, we are to be transformed into the image of God's Son. And we call that experiential sanctification, where we produce experiential righteousness. But it has nothing whatsoever to do with positional righteousness and positional sanctification. What ha they're striving, look at this, so that, uh, and when the transformation takes place, they're thinking over a lifetime after all this time, what will we be? And she says, the body of Christ. I, I tell you right now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are the body of Christ and you are in Christ, not because of some progressive system of works that you've accomplished, you are in Christ according to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That is what put us permanently in Jesus Christ and it happened at the moment of salvation. 
And nothing can undo that. See, that's the positional. They're taking something that God has accomplished for us that's positional, it is permanent, and they think that as we are transformed by doing all of these rituals and, and, and sacraments and so forth, we will eventually become the body of Christ. We will eventually be in Christ, as we'll see in the next paragraph. She's talking about even becoming one with the Trinity. One with God. But it, I'm just getting ahead of myself, and I'm, I'm just about out of time. What I'm saying is, it's not being one with God that we're talking about. We're talking about Mormonism. We're talking about being one with God like becoming God. But I hadn't got there yet. Are y'all seeing how they can, they just misconstrued these things? And it's, that's why we have to get into the original languages in order to, to cipher all this thing out to make sure that we have it accurate. And the Bible does not contradict itself. And Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which you all know what that is, that's a bedrock foundational truth of God's salvation. What is Ephesians, what's the first thing in Ephesians chapter, eight, uh, chapter 2, verse 8? For by what? Grace. It's all about grace. And what is grace? Getting what you don't deserve. We could never deserve it, and they're trying to deserve it because they have confused or are ignorant of the distinctions between what happens to us at the point of salvation positionally and what we are required and commanded to do experientially for the rest of our life. They've taken this part over here and made it applicable to being saved, and none of that is true. I'll just do this last deal and we'll stop. I don't think I will. This is about nuptial salvation. And I only have four minutes, and I can't do this, do this, uh, give it proper attention in four minutes. Uh, nuptial, have you ever, has any of you ever heard of nuptial salvation? This was really interesting. And uh, like I said, it gave me some insights as to how they think. Again, we want to be able to understand what their thinking is. And when some, if, if you get on a, in a conversation with a Catholic, you need to understand. They don't understand positional. Their, their grace is for them to be able to go down this narrow road to where eventually they can become holy. They can be sanctified. They're missing the point about having God's own righteousness. You got that? And that's why these verses are so powerful. To the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, His what? Faith is credited as righteousness. That one verse puts a stake through the heart of all this that this poor lady has bought into that she has to have grace to walk down the narrow way in order to be holy. And sometimes, some, some way, sometime maybe she'll be one with Christ. We are already in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll continue this next time. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to focus our attention on uh, getting the gospel right.
we need to be prepared when we're speaking to whoever it is that has embraced satanic lies. And we pray that you will help us now to better understand the people who are in Catholicism. They are not our enemy. You died on the cross, your son did, for them to be saved. And we pray that you will prepare us to be ready to give them the gospel and then the mighty power of your word and the gospel will break through all these barriers and through all these lies so they can see the wonderful truth of your word and your grace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.